Welcome to the Canon Convos podcast, where we speak to Australia's most inspiring photographers to find out what makes them tick. I'm your host, Jared Singh, and today I'll be talking with photojournalist Mridula Arman about capturing stories in this insane year that is 2020, diversity in the media landscape, and how our lived experiences and background shape the way we photograph. It's a really insightful conversation from a unique perspective, so I hope you enjoy. Okay, we're here with Mridula Arman. How are you going? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm over in Perth and I believe you're over in Sydney. Yeah, sunny Sydney. <laughs> I'm having a vibe. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us on the Canon Convos podcast. I think it'll be a really interesting conversation with you because it's you're, what you do is quite different to the other people I've spoken with. You're a photojournalist with ABC mm-hmm. and... I, I took a quick browse through your work and and your images, and it's so it's so interesting the kind of the kind of work you do. So I'm super excited. Thank you, thank you. I did as I was as I was doing the Instagram scroll. I did find a very strange crossover, um, <laughs> a story that you did on uh, Deliveroo drivers uh, being being the front line workers during this pandemic and I noticed a familiar face old mate Steve Steve (laughs) from Survivor (laughs) everyone knows Steve I didn't know that you guys were in the same um Survivor no we went on the same one Steve he's such a passionate (laughs) passionate guy like meeting him for that story was great great that I I managed to talk to him he's he's got a unique position (laughs) enough about Survivor Steve uh First up, this is the first question I, I ask every guest on this podcast is what Canon gear are you shooting with? Sure. So I've actually had the exact same Canon gear that I've had the whole time that I've been shooting as a photojournalist. I'm not really a gearhead. So I use a Canon 5D Mark III and basically for the first few years, I just had a 24 to 70. It's such a good workhorse um, for the type of work I do. And then I added to my kit probably a few years back a 35 millimeter to get um, the really low light aperture. I got a 1.4 on my 35 and then my 24 to 70 is a 2.8 lens. And then, yeah, I guess I do have like a very cheap 50 millimeter that I don't really use that much. Um, And I recently had an astrophotography trip and I hired out a 14 millimeter, but yeah, basically my kits two lenses and one camera, which is a bit embarrassing <laughs> to, to admit as a working photojournalist, but I'm just... No, I mean, to me that sounds perfect because yeah. that, that's all you really need. It's covering most of your bases and I assume with the kind of work you do, you, you have to travel light. You can't be lugging around exactly a bunch yeah. of unnecessary gear. The, the one thing I, I see missing is do you ever miss having a telephoto in there? Are there times where there's some action going on in the distance and you know you, you don't want to get too close is I imagine that might be yeah some, some. yeah it's a running joke in the newsroom that I don't have a zoom lens and I've I've always like <laughs> no I don't I'm, I don't use flash I don't use zooms and it's just like everyone's like you're an idiot like you know that you're gonna have to get one at some point I don't know why I've had this battle and I think <laughs> I'm slowly realizing that yeah like sometimes when I'm set on animal assignments or whatnot having mm. that telephoto zoom lens would kind of give it so I think I'm easing into exploring more gear but I think for a long while I was a bit scared 
to delve into that world. It was it's a lot of money to invest into getting a thousand types of lenses. You know, I I am really just a small photojournalist trying to carry a whole bunch of things at one time. So I think now that I've got my bases covered, I think I can move more into that um, mm. arena of exploring the more um, specific lenses and like specific things. So yeah. that'll probably be my next purchase. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if I could make a suggestion, I think once you have something like a seventy-two hundred, then I think then you're done. I don't think you really need anything else. Really? I mean, Do you think yeah. seventy-two to hundred would be good for like birds and sports? Mate, and you might need more for that, but I think as a, like a, your general kit, so that's that's pretty much what I take around. You know, I take around a wide a portrait and then a uh, a telephoto, like a seventy-two hundred, mm. and that covers most bases. And then, if you happen to be going on safari or something like that, then <laughs> yeah. then I usually borrow or hire something because it doesn't get much use. I, I have never owned anything more than two hundred Zoom. <laughs> okay, cool, cool, cool. No, it's good to know. And I feel like sometimes I was like, oh, maybe I want to get something super wide, like have a twenty-eight. But I think for my purposes, or like a 24, I think, yeah, just having the two lenses and really it's about the camera that I know. Like at work, I also can switch between cameras, but um, because I've used my Canon 5D for what, four years now, I kind of know its limitations. I know how to shoot for my edit. It's, yeah, it's kind of like a second second limb now. So mm. yeah, those three, those three elements <laughs> is kind of all I need to at least get one good shot on assignment. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess, uh, I guess the flip side is if you don't have a, a crazy amount of zoom, it forces you to get up close and personal with your subjects. Yeah. And that is actually probably a danger that some people get stuck in is when they have a lot of zoom, there's no incentive to to get close. You, you like you, you sit back and snipe things. And totally. Because it's easier, you know, it's less confronting. Yeah, I think that's, I was taught that I was doing a workshop with um, two photojournalists called Ed Cashy and Ash Gilbertson, who are great. They're from Seven Photo. And yeah, they were kind of the ones who were like, you got to go into prime lens, like you you shoot too wide. Like the habit when you have when you have a zoom lens, like a 28 to 70, is that you'll kind of sit back and like kind of keep zooming in and out. But really to grow intimacy, you should be moving your feet. You should be like moving around the subject. You should be like learning the best angles, getting close. And I think... Yeah, I think having that, those kind of lenses, some people even said like tape down your Zoom to teach you to get closer <laughs> really? to subject. Yeah, like wow, if, if you don't want to invest that. in a prime, yeah, it's a bit <laughs> of a photojournalism thing. Like it's really kind of a big ethos of like get closer, move closer um, and don't yeah. rely on your lens to kind of mm. keep that distance. Well, well, that's a good lead into, um, I'd love to talk to you about what you do. Can you describe what your job is as a photojournalist uh, so how do I describe where to begin? <laughs> I suppose, yeah, photojournalism is, I guess, a specific type of photography that is more focused on events and storytelling and news, I suppose. You're capturing history. It's not really necessarily about um, capturing a pretty picture. There's a lot of, yeah, story, I don't, the story that you're trying to tell, and usually that story has um, a certain relevance to what's happening in the world at that time, to sum up. Um, what photojournalism is, I'm sure you can Google it and get a way better answer than that. But yeah, what what I do is very much focused on um, matching my visual storytelling to the type of journalism that I'm trying to do. Um, so I work as both a reporter and photojournalist, but um, a lot of my assignments might be just photojournalism. But 
even saying that when you go out an assignment as a photojournalist, you need to know the story. You're in charge of the captions. You're in charge of making sure everything is done in a really ethical way um, because the whole process is still a form of journalism um, and you have to grow a lot of trust with those subjects to be able to get that intimate and that close, um, it, particularly in the type of storytelling that I do. Mm. So what does a, I know there's no such thing as a typical assignment, but what would an assignment look like? Would you, um, I guess, do you, do you have somebody at, at the ABC who, who puts you onto a story? Do you pitch a story to your editors? How, what, what would normally happen? I think it's a, a bit of both. Um, what was my last assignment was a pretty fun one. It was just like my editor texting me and saying, hey, you need to go shoot some glowworms next Monday, so, you know, prepare your bags. So sometimes it's this glamorous photojournalism life of you get assignments to Lord Howe Highland and whatnot, but I would say that's a rarity. I think um, most of the time I'm pitching my own stories, one, because I'm also a reporter, but two, yes, like if you think of a visual story, it's like I'm thinking this, these are the elements, this is the story. So when I'm working with the ABC, it's kind of that sort of um, relationship. If I'm pitching my own stories, I should know the story. There should be a news hook or a reason why we're doing it. I will have to go and find the people that I'm going to photograph and interview, and I will usually write it as well. Other times, if it's an assignment, um, yeah, it will just kind of be given to me, like, hey, do this. I will always ask what the theme of the story is, is it what the mood is, because that's really important to my work. Um, I because people can say, oh, go shoot this, like we're doing a glowworm story. But if I don't know the mood of it, am I gonna, is it going to be like some, some happy glowworm story where everyone's like laughing everywhere or is it going to be a more sombre thing? So this story was that the glowworms had survived the bushfires. So it was kind of this cool, mysterious sort of thing of like how did these glowworms survive? Um, and at the same time, we we're trying to get this sense of mystery and awe and celestialness in it. So um, that's kind of how I think about assignment work. Outside of the ABC, when I work with places like National Geographic or New York Times, those are usual. With National Geographic, it's a much more collaborative process. Like they will have a broad idea, but they work very closely with the photographer to figure out what you're going to capture and how you would capture it. So there's a lot of creative freedom. Some assignments, on the other hand, are like, we just need you to get shots that would complement this story. But yeah, so each assignment's really different and it's going to depend on who you're working with, how that experience is going to be, I would say. And where did this passion for, for, I guess, for photography, but also photojournalism. Where did that come from? Have you always been interested in photography or has it been as a, just as you've dived into journalism that the visual element became more important as well? Um, I think, I think I was always, always a visual person. Like when I was like going through high school, loved cult films, like loved this magazine called Colors Magazine. It was this Italian magazine and it just had amazing visuals. Um, but I just never thought that life was possible for me. Like with the expectations I had myself, ethnic family, I was like, no, 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 I've got to be a lawyer, a doctor. Um, so even though I knew I was this creative person, it wasn't really how I envisioned my life ending up. Um, but then I was working at a law firm, I think when I was 21 and you know, you realise that, wow, you've got this dream that you thought you wanted and then it's it's not fulfilling you. And I would spend all my time Googling, like, Tim Hetherington, what camera does he use, Sebastian Salgado? And then just one day I was just like, I spend all my time Googling this. I'm just going to go spend all my life savings on this Canon camera down the road. Um, did that. And at the time in law school I was studying um, about the Rohingya genocide. 
and I'd written to another photographer and he'd kind of given me a lead and I was like, you know what, no one's going to give me the permission to go and try this thing out. So I kind of got this camera that I didn't know how to use at all. Like I'm not even kidding, didn't even understand the exposure triangle at that point. Um, and then I went to this kind of um, displacement camp in Myanmar and kind of shot my own first assignment based on my own interest. And, you know, the things I felt there, I felt so alive. I felt so connected with the people there. I was like, well, it was so lucky that I took that risk to then get a slice of, you know, what my life's work would feel like. And it was probably just, you know, a very small, you know, minute. I think a woman had like caught my hand or I'd had eye contact or like they were so, they valued so much someone witnessing what they were going through. Um, and that just changed the kind of the course of my life from, you know, an interest in being into visuals to, oh no, this is um, the beginning of a career path. But I never thought, I didn't even call myself a photojournalist until two years ago. I think <laughs> going through that ownership is quite weird. Um, but yeah, it was just kind of a small chipping away of doing little assignments um, over the next few years from that moment. And then eventually obviously getting um, work across different industries, working away in my journalism and now to this point where I can, you know, I, I, get, I get paid to, you know, be a photojournalist. Amazing, amazing that you've, you've come to this point. I want to bring it back to what you were saying about um, being a lawyer and studying law. There's a little bit of crossover there as well. I also, well, I, I only lasted one year of law school. Oh. <laughs> similar story. Did a year of law school. Legal process was probably the, <laughs> the killer in yeah. that one. Um, same kind of thing, I imagine, you know, expectations, family expectations. Um, you know, you, you, you have the marks, so you go into what you think is the most impressive thing to be doing. Mm, mm, um, totally. But then realizing, wait, maybe, maybe it's not going to be that fun. Maybe if I have, to, if I always thought, you know, while I was studying, if the kind of stuff I'm reading and doing right now is what I will be doing for the rest of my life as a lawyer, then I don't think that's a very f fulfilling life for me. Totally, and I think yeah, people, I feel yeah. like yeah, I got into law. I knew that I got in for the right reasons. I still. If I had 48 hours in the day, of course, I'd be a lawyer and a photojournalist and a million other things, but I don't. And at the end of the day, I really want to be a human rights lawyer or make a change. But you go through the law school process and you realise, um, particularly in Australia, there's not much, uh, I guess, latitude for that. It's very commercial focused. And then, too, if you want to really work out, of course, you can become what you want to become. But I kind of compared the two and I was like, you need to sometimes, even if the end goal is the same, which is making change in the world, creating social justice, you need to look at the process. And the process, what was more painful for me was like each, and no matter what career you choose, there's going to be some sort of pain to it. With being a photojournalist, it's getting up at 3 a.m. in the morning sometimes and it's uh, you're sweating everywhere and it sucks. And on the flip side, the pain of being lawyers probably looking through cases, reading you know, for ages and ages of creating arguments and having to be very fickle and like, I don't know, in depth. And when I compared the two processes side by side, I would always choose the photojournalism one. I didn't enjoy the, the pain of being a lawyer <laughs> as much as I did the pain of being a photojournalist. And so that's okay, how right, I ended right. up coming to choosing. Yeah. Mm. Some people are going to love the pain of being a lawyer though. That's so, true. You know, kudos to them. <laughs> they want to read cases for the rest of their lives. <laughs> So have you come to the realisation that you can affect more change 
through your work as a photojournalist rather than as a lawyer? I think the type of change that I'm trying to create, it might not be this grassroots trying to change the law, but I am sometimes in my work just trying to change a perspective or move people in a way that makes them think. And I feel like a photograph is able to do that in such a powerful and simple way across the world. You don't need words. You don't need a specific language. You can understand a lot just by looking at something. So uh, that's the kind of medium I'm choosing at the moment. If that changes, of course it might. Maybe I'll go into something else. Maybe the job I want doesn't exist yet. It's a mixture of law and, in, you know, investigation, photojournalism and, I don't know, making board games. So who knows? <laughs> who knows? So we're talking about change a lot. What, through your work, what is what is the drive? What is this? What the change that you're hoping to bring about with your work? I suppose um, it depends on each subject. I suppose when I'm my, lots of my work is around migration or race or kind of those more human issues of like difference. I feel mm. like when I'm shooting, I'm trying to create some sort of empathy push um, the way they see the world a bit more, to just challenge them slightly, to see things a bit differently, even if it's just a millimetre. Um, and I think that would create change in people at a really base level, um, mm. just to make them critically think, make them question, to make them connect. Um, and on those kind of bigger stories, like when I've worked in Nauru um, on a New York Times piece, that is obviously a much more serious story than glowworms. And with that, I am trying to present a reality to people that they might not have seen before. And if that's about suicidal children, um, photojournalism does have that role to get in there and be so intimate and, you know, at times maybe shock people of what's really happening. Um, sometimes you can't do that with, with words alone or um, political messages alone. Mm. Not that I'm trying to be an activist. I suppose I'm just trying to show some sort of truth to allow people to come to their senses. <laughs> You were born in Bangladesh. And yeah, migrated, I was born in Taka. And migrated to Australia. So has that kind of migrant experience shaped the way that you photograph or the way that you view the world and, and how you approach your stories? I would say so. I think um, when you're a migrant or even the fact that I was born in Bangladesh, I came here when I was quite young. So I've had a very different migrant experience than maybe people who came here mm. when they're older. So I've had to kind of come here and live between two cultures. And, you know, when you're younger and you're like an angsty teenager, you're like, what the hell? Like, why do I have to go through this pain? Like, just let me be Aussie or whatever. But <laughs> Australia is a very unique place. Like you, I feel like there's this image of what an Australian is, which is the blonde surfer girl from Bondi. And I was just never going to fit into that. And, Growing up, you'd have various kind of racist experiences that do shape you. Um, I've never been kind of bitter or whatnot. I've actually been really grateful that I've had an experience that allows me to feel like the other because it allows me to then connect to people who are considered the other in this country um, or across the world. So it shapes you in the way that I am so sensitive to the way migration or the way people are viewed or how colour is viewed or having an accent is viewed in this country um, yeah, can really diminish a sense of value or make create certain glass ceilings that you can't even see if you're coming from a privileged background. So it has shaped what I'm drawn to. I think people who are made to feel different or, you know, that sense of difference that's created off, off the most basic things that don't even make sense at all. Um, yeah, I think it's just e interesting for me to unpack as someone who's probably trying to 
understand the world better, but also understand myself and my own journey through it. Mm, I can relate to what you said uh, quite quite deeply. The same kind of experience mm. I've had growing up. Obviously, I don't look Australian, but I ha- was born in Australia, and, and that's been my only experience. So there's, there's yeah. always been this kind of two minds thing where same as you, you know, growing up, you don't want to be different at all because that's something people can pick on. And all mm. you're thinking is, I just want to, yeah, I just want to be, why can't I just be the average Aussie? Like I don't, I don't want, yeah, yeah. I don't want to be the, the different one. But, you know, as you get older, you start realizing that's actually, like you said, being able to relate to the other or having something that's different about you, that actually can be quite an advantage in mm. a lot of situations. And and just like you said, you know, being able to connect with other people that look different than the average Australian. Um, that's I think that that's like a hidden um, advantage. You know, I, mm. I assume it, it's, it might be similar with your experience where having somebody that looks like you approach somebody in say Nauru, would, that would, that might, open up a dialogue in a way that wouldn't happen if a uh, tall white surfer dude. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. And somebody. I feel like, yeah. And I think um, photojournalism, the industry is really recognizing that finally um, cumul- accumulated with obviously the movements that are happening in the world right now. But even earlier, I think I was able to figure out that I do have a strength in being a female, but also being a woman of color. Mm. Um, I'm able to kind of enter situations and be a bit of a spider on the wall. Um, you got a tall, you know, the usual kind of photojournalists that are going around taking photos if you're, you know, tall white guy. When you're working with Muslim women, you might not get that kind of mm. intimacy. Whereas I, particularly when I realised in Myanmar and all my kind of assignments since, it's I'm sort of this unusual kind of person in Australian photojournalism and rather than kind of like lay on the bitterness of like, oh, I wish I was just the average Aussie. It's been able to be a really great, um, to be able to connect with who I really am and mm. then to use that strength and understand that, yes, I have something that a lot of people don't have in their life experience. So why mm. don't you use that to um, make your storytelling so intimate in, you know, in the ways that you can. Um, so I feel like that's definitely what I tell, you know, young up and coming female photographers as well. Like you need to figure out your story and what that, what the strengths within that are, because, you know, everyone, the thing that we do, particular photography and storytelling, it's so unique to who we are. We are looking at life through our lens um, and it is just worth figuring out what, what is unique about it. You don't really want to photograph like every other person. So you need to kind of figure out what's, what's different about you and then use that to your advantage, I'd say. Mm. So 2020 has been a pretty insane year man 2020 (laughs) (laughs) um i mean yeah i mean i don't know what to say but how how has 2020 been for you as a photojournalist i mean as a just general consumer of the news Mm. (laughs) it's been Mm. hectic there's it's crazy there's uh information misinformation everything is just flying around everywhere there's division there's Absolutely. a lot of hatred there's just so much going on i wanted mm. to know from your perspective as a photojournalist someone working in the news uh and, and yeah. in journalism what has that been like what has 2020 been like 
Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is like, yeah, I signed up to this life of working in the 24-hour news cycle, but um, regardless, it's overwhelming and I think we are all overwhelmed at some point. But I'm someone who kind of is really good at pivoting or trying to at least distance myself from what I think is like overwhelming. I don't know. So basically at the, when it first kicked off, I was like, this is so intense because you're matching your own personal experience of going through coronavirus and not being able to travel. Like, you know, some people have obviously lost work with the fact that you're also meant to be on the job and um, trying to help people make a sense of this disaster. So I was really kind of torn apart because I just, I wanted to work 24 seven to make sure I could find the best stories and really give value to why I even exist. On the flip side, I was dealing with so much personal angst and, you know, horror of seeing kind of my work change in such a drastic way. And so that had just led me to go on a really deep journey of like self-work, to be honest. I feel like I was really lucky. I didn't lose my job at the ABC. They've, you know, journalism in some ways has proved to be an essential service to get information out and cut through this misinformation war that's happening so I didn't lose work it was more just like I had to take a step back and figure out what kind of photojournalism I wanted to be or um, what kind of photojournalism I wanted to be and I was able to pivot quite quickly to making sure that the photojournalism I was doing is very localized and um, personal to kind of the area that I'm living in New South Wales given that's just my state at the moment. And so it pivoted very quickly to, you know, to getting all these kind of assignments flying around or whatever to maybe more human stories that are in your community and really pivoting to that and seeing how your community is affected and whatnot. So I was able to kind of, yeah, figure out my photojournalism and kind of use my skills as a journalist to create those community contacts and find stories that way rather than kind of get hung up on the fact that I wasn't, yeah, getting big international assignments or... Mm. Um, moving away and yeah part of that is also just like to deal with the overwhelming nature of a 24 hour news cycle you need to be able to work on yourself and um I don't know not whatever people's kind of method is whether that's meditating or taking a breather or taking some space or doing nothing to just get grounded about what's important um sometimes being a photojournalism can be an egotistical exercise where you get really like caught up in your career, but then if you um, kind of going down to the basis of connecting with other people, connecting with your family and friends or partner or whatever, I think that was really important to give me a bit of perspective around what was happening in the world and be able to handle the craziness. I definitely miss travel though. I feel like that's been, I feel like part of our work as photographers is to be in new places and see them through our eyes. So I feel like it's been really hard to, yeah, manage that, inspiration or that change to my lifestyle or like ex exploration is just so much of who I am but I guess I'm trying to make it a more localized experience now and try and gain something a bit different from that so I don't know how you feel uh pretty much the same you know it, it is a bummer to um not being able to travel even interstate for me from WA mm. uh or overseas a lot of my work overseas uh well all of it got cancelled mm. um so yeah there's part of me that's like man you know everything was going so well on the rise <laughs> getting all these huge assignments and it's like oh that's that's a it's a bit of a bummer but you mm. know it's not mm. like you sit around doing nothing when that happens it means yeah like you said you delve deeper into what's local and you find a new perspective that you probably didn't have time for previously mm. 
I think on the flip side, yeah, I was pretty disappointed because once you start doing, you know, work with Nat Geo or New York Times or, you know, Wall Street Journal, you know, they're, they're on your radar to go do really crazy international assignments. So when this went down, you feel like your career has stalled in some ways. You're like, well, how am I going to keep up that momentum after, what, two years of not being able mm. to go overseas? What I've seen with some editors, though, is that they flip because they're not able to send people around the world more. They're focusing more on that localised who's there and can do that kind of great assignment that might have gone to someone who was kind of more higher up internationally. Um, so in some flip, I feel like people maybe shouldn't be too upset because I think editors are kind of looking out for local talent a lot more because they can't work in their usual ways. Um, so, yeah, I can definitely with kind of people that I talk to or mentor, I feel like um, it, it might be a good time to also be aware that, those dynamics are changing and to lift yourself up and know that you're a, you're an expert for your region. And mm. that might mean that you can get more work of that. Even though, I don't know, I, we're so lucky to live in Australia. I feel like yes. we have so much to explore. Well, at least I, yeah, I mean, New South Wales, it's been great to explore my state, but yeah, definitely, definitely miss going around the Asia Pacific or Asia oh. or my assignments at the moment, but it's what it mm. is. I'll be talking about the same thing with uh, with some other photographers. Like, you know, the initial shock of losing work, you know, it's a bit of a downer. But what I found in my own experience as well is, yes, I am stuck in Western Australia. I can't leave, but also nobody else can come in. So, yeah. I mean, tourism work has been going crazy for me because right. I'm here within WA, you know, I've established myself fairly well so fairly high up on the list of people you want to shoot something if if it's in WA and the other thing is I've uh, completed some like contracted work through east coast agencies who normally would uh, send their own people over to to shoot their assignment in WA but they can't do that anymore so they they have mm. to look at well who's in WA so in some way like the the amount of work hasn't shifted too much um mm. there's just different work there you know where normally you might send somebody across borders now you look at somebody local so you can't go out but no one else can come in so yeah you know yeah. if you I, um, yeah if you yeah, yeah realize that shift and and kind of play to that that it, it might be okay <laughs> yeah i think for freelancers and particularly yeah people who are maybe not in a contract job like I am. Like I am so lucky to work with the ABC who are an amazing organisation to work for, but obviously we have newsrooms in every state. So I was able to be quite protected in the fact that I work for the New South Wales newsroom based in New South Wales. So uh, all my assignments have now pivoted to um, New South Wales work. But for a period there, we weren't even allowed to leave Sydney itself. And for, you know, uh, an organisation that's charged with informing the entire of Australia, it was kind of getting a bit too much of a focused area. So I'm a bit glad that restrictions have eased. I'm able to kind of move around a bit more, go up to the Blue Mountains or, um, you know, do five-hour drives, go to the Warren mm. Bungles and whatnot. But we'll see how it plays out, I suppose, for the rest of the year. If there's another breakout, <laughs> um, we'll have to go through another self-help journey <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's kind of just hanging over our heads isn't it you just you <laughs> yeah. just assume that something's gonna happen again so yeah just, at least got a little bit of mental preparation for that <laughs> i can't just expect it to happen so yeah yeah <laughs> yeah um i mean but i mean there's plenty of uh 
crazy things happening at home. Anyway, I was browsing through some of your recent work and there's you've got some images from like the protests and mm. um yeah, all manners of protests happening happening locally. Uh what was it like being on the ground in some of those situations? The photo that I saw was um I think it was some people standing around the Captain Cook statue. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah, unauthorized. Pr- protecting, protecting it. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, yeah. What's it's been like an being... incredible time. Yeah, it's yeah, been such uh, yeah, an incredible this... time. Being in coronavirus, working on the ground while a bunch of different movements like Black Lives Matter happen at the same time. So. It's it's just so intense because you've got this accumulation. And one, I'm also a woman of colour working in this industry and often you feel like it's your duty to also be reporting or working on these assignments, but you also need to manage the exhaustion of also being like, I'm covering these issues of race, it's also affecting me, I need to be on the ground, I, I don't want to take a break, I want to be here covering it. But it has been interesting, I guess, having that front seat Um to having to work with, you know, this mask, like I have to wear goggles when I'm out, like there's a whole protocol with my workplace and being on the ground and witnessing why the, you just, the crazy thing that happened at that protest, you know, it was an illegal one, I understand. So basically the police officers surrounded a Captain Cook statue, uh, like 20 of them to protect that, um, which, you know, they obviously have their right to protect from vandalism, but the symbolism of that was so much more <laughs> powerful. So when I took that shot, obviously it just created so much uh, anger, I suppose, throughout um, the community because it's always connected to the most recent news events of like, oh, well, Rio Tinto just blew up some, you know, Indigenous sites where were the police officers or the protection there. So you create these comparisons and that's why photography is so powerful and symbolic because it just allows people to compare two things and to mm. try and make an understanding of the world and who's who has privilege and who doesn't. Um, so that was quite interesting. I feel like the first protest was, which was um, legalised like two minutes before it actually happened. Um, it happened in the main town square and I kind of took a photo there of David Dungay Jr., who was the nephew of um, the man who died, who the protests kind of kicked off about. Um, and that was quite a powerful image as well. And you're kind of in the throw of things and um, there was just so many more people there who came out no matter even if it was a coronavirus and a social distancing. So you're in this kind of weird period of like people are trying to make decisions on what is right and what is wrong, what is worth maybe bending the rules for and what isn't worth bending the rules for. And it, so it's just interesting to like, be, be a part of that, that at the time how we're trying to photograph like this very big political movement. Um, no, it's been incredible. It's been, meant a lot to me covering the Black Lives Matter stuff. And I think right now I feel like it's kind of weird because I feel like, is it fading away? Like, are people still caring? Um, and so you battle with that and you're like, how do I bring this back to the forefront? This is a really important movement. How do you keep covering this when the protests can't happen in person? Um, but, yeah, I just hope that it's such an important time in the world now. I hope we can keep the momentum going and that people's mental health can keep taking <laughs> taking it, but they're such important movements. I and I've seen the ramifications have such a big effect in the US, overseas, maybe slightly in Australia, but I haven't seen it to the same effect. So I'm interested to see how it plays out. Mm. 
what kind of is it is it a, an emotional experience you know photographing these protests because you are involved in in a few different levels and then does that seep into the way you photograph it like the way that you photograph it would do you think that is different to how somebody else may mm. photograph it who is more disconnected actually yeah and i mean maybe maybe it's you know giving too much information but when i came i'm probably one of the only um people of color photographers in my organization or let alone even in my photo agency that i work for and when you come back with the photos you see what other people file and you see that they sometimes it's white people at the protest and that's all fine and good you're still capturing history but i've noted that I'm just drawn to, yeah, the people, the photographs that I came back with was Indigenous people or people of colour. Um, they were the ones that I feature, not because, and it's because I'm immediately drawn to them because I feel like the movement is about them. And it, it is about white people have been allies. But when I came back and I just saw that I was the one of the few photographers who actually focused on this stuff, I was like, this is why I need to be out there because no one else is going to note that if you're going to write about this stuff, we need to be amplifying people of colour in the photography, in the voices that we're using. It's a whole process. And so I think because I'm so emotionally invested and this has been my whole life, I'm able to approach it with the right ethics and the right thinking. Um, and it, it did upset me, I suppose. You work in it and you see how these protests are covered. Who's getting assigned is a really big one. Um, I had big discussions around that, around if we are going to cover these protests you know make sure that you're seeking out the people of color to cover it because it's a loaded you know it's a loaded statement but let's be real now i mean if you have that talent available to you why wouldn't you send a person of color reporter or a person of color photographer um because you will get a certain storytelling that stays true to the people you're photographing that sometimes you can't get with particularly on a race you know on a race story mm. that you might not be able to get from your usual a white assignment person that you go to. Um, and I definitely saw that, to be honest. So, yeah, it was it is an emotional experience. I did have to take a break, I think, after it. Um, take a bit of a break and reassess so it didn't. I could go back out there and still be really strong. Because I think mm. when you're photographing something and you're seeing the internal structures bring up the same issues that they're protesting, it can really slap you in the face and you can really question your worth in this industry and it's always really useful to take a break and be like no um if this is you know this is not something that's going to drown you out it's worth the battle it's worth always speaking up it's worth teaching people and learning you know learning new things yourself every day and going back into the you know into the into the woods to do this sort of work but yeah i was emotionally drained working on the protests i will i will admit that um but it's not something that i'm willing to not cover <laughs> you know, you, some stories you just choose, you know, you know that it's draining for you, but it's just so important for you and for other people that you you need to make decisions around, yeah, pushing yourself to make sure that you can be there to cover that. And I don't know, I'm still navigating that, mm. like when to take space, when to not take space, when to take a breather and not, you know, be so caught up in my work sometimes. Mm. Do you think that is just uh, industry-wide a, a problem that a, pro a problem with the way that news is presented do you think that if there is more diversity in who's covering world events uh, 
that you, I'm not sure how to say this, but mm. Mm. you'd get more depth or whatever. Or... Yeah, more depth is 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 that a problem? Because that it's kind of a hidden problem in in that I I don't think most people would realize most people mm. didn't w- wouldn't dive into uh factors as who who's the person covering the story what race are mm. they and what did they how are they framing this issue differently than somebody else might be i don't think it's something that most people would really think no. about no mm. but i think i feel like as storytellers or the people who are you know creating the news in some ways we probably need to delve into these issues and diversity isn't just about the race or the colour of that person who's doing the story. It also is about socioeconomic class. It's about their life experience. Um, And, you know, I want people, if we're going to do stories about wealth inequality, damn straight I want a reporter who might have grown up in a housing commission to cover that story. But we don't have that, do we? Because our structures are created in a way that's so... And I come from the same, you know, cloth in some ways, university-educated lawyer, but... Sometimes I often just think about how key the value of someone who would be so different to my life experience would bring, whether they're bringing that to the story, whether they're bringing it to their photography. And we've seen the success of that, like, you know, photographers like Kalik Allah, who just joined Magnum. Um, People who can be so close to the community are able to capture a certain intimacy that you just can't if you don't have a, if you're not part of that community or not connected to it in a very visceral lived experience way. And I think it does create stronger work. There's a huge battle going on right now in photojournalism around these sort of stuff. Like, does it matter? Does the race matter? And it is all about like, yeah, that's that like, connection to community. But um, I think if that opportunity is there where you would be able to choose or, ele- you know, elevate a person of colour photographer to cover, you know, a story about race and privilege you should really consider that option a lot more seriously than you have in the past because what's the change that you're creating otherwise? Is things just going to stay the same or we're going to have the same problems where people are maybe shown as victim or not powerful? I think that's been a really interesting movement in the protest photography coming out of how are we painting black people when we photograph them and what's your ethical... Photographer does have a lot of power in how we kind of photograph people. Are we going to show them as an angry, violent sort of image or are we going to show them as resilient? And they're very, they're two very different things. And I think as a person of colour, I'm not black, so I can't, you know, speak from that perspective. But from that perspective, I can see why comparing the two is very um, important to make sure that the image that you're putting out isn't constructing a stereotype that has been going on for 20 years, decades, hundreds of, you know, millions of years. And maybe just having this kind of thought process is valuable, which you might not have if you, I don't know, I don't have the lived experience maybe. I don't know. Mm. I feel like I'm rambling so you can, like, correct me if I'm <laughs> going on no, and on. This is this is all really interesting to hear. And I think, I think tackling diversity across the board really, I, I feel like it's changing for the better yeah. very slowly and I, I think we can see it in politics as well I mean you look at someone like AOC over in the US yeah who I mean faces so, so many headwinds but 
oh, has, is, has this popularity, I suppose, but because people are realizing, wait, maybe the people that represent us should have the same lived experience as us and aren't just rich white males of a certain generation or, or mm. privilege. Mm. Yes, that is a, you know, large part of society so that's you have people to represent them but there are also <laughs> massive parts of the community who have zit can relate in no way to the kind of life that these people have and I totally think that's and I feel like yeah and I think um in photography as well like Oculi my photo collective you know had a call out and they were so focused on diversity but the one thing that I've always said and you know we all agree on is you shouldn't be choosing these photographers just based on their back you know if they're colored or whatnot they should still be equal like in experience and talent and you should be choosing them based off their work rather than ticking a box and that's kind of what's hard to tiptoe around like I would never say oh don't hire that person because they're that color and you won't get the work because they could be a better photographer because they have the ethics or they have the connections or they have the interview skills that you require but it is that balance of like if you have someone who's of you know, equally powerful st storytelling ability, who do you choose? And I don't know, you just get into these big debates and it's so hard to like, these conversations around race are just so sensitive. You don't want to, you know, create controversy or you don't want to break connections. So they're really difficult to discuss. But I think um, rather than get scared of offending each other, I think we should hold space and kind of get into this ambiguous nature a bit more I think we can really gain something from it if we can hit it hit it right, particularly when it comes to covering these sort of Black Lives Matter sort of issues. And mm -hmm. um, I would never say, oh, my God, don't come to a protest and photographer. It's more just like make sure that we have a mix. We have white photographers, but we also have black photographers. That's all I'm kind of seeking. And when I'm going out and I see none of that, it does um, disappoint me that space hasn't been created for black photographers on, you know, issues that relate to them. Mm. Well, I think we're just about out of time. So thank Sweet. you so much for your time and for your thoughts and everything. I think there's, there's plenty to think about. Okay. Uh, as a, as a uh, parting question, I wanted to ask if you had any advice for any young aspiring photojournalists out there who want to be out there on this kind of assignments that you're on. Um, I feel like sometimes if, you know, you have to grow your portfolio and I guess with my own experience is you're not gonna, it's not, not worth waiting around, uh, waiting for permission or someone from the ABC or the New York times to give you a call and say, go do it. Like, I really think you need to take the risk yourself, be, be educated and know, um, what makes a good photojournalist, which is human connection, empathy, research, really knowing that stuff. But you know, build up that already act as if you're a photojournalist and really take that on because if you keep kind of producing that level of work, eventually the calls will come. But two, I suppose as things become more convoluted and there's more competition, more Instagram, et cetera, et cetera, it's really important to know your story. I think that's something that I harnessed quite early on. Um, it's not good enough really in photojournalism just to take a pretty photo and say that's what I want to do. You need to understand why you're the person to tell a story 
And for me, that's why, you know, I'm so drawn to migrant experiences or certain kind of things because I was like, this is this is me, this is my lived experience, this is my story. I didn't get trained as a photographer. I did law, I did this, I did this, but that's why it's accumulated to make me this type of storyteller. If you're about that, great, take it. If you're not, that's cool. Like I've, I've tried to communicate best I can who I am. And I think once you figure that out um, and get really succinct what your story is, you're able to navigate a world that might not be created for you in a better way, in a stronger way. There's so many meetings I've been in, which I 100% know is like rigged against me or I might not be the top candidate based on various biases or prejudices. And then I've just been able to completely wing it because I know who I am um, right down to the thread and they're able to see that strength and be like, oh, actually that chick's, she's, she knows it. And you can mm-hmm. you kind of create, you create opportunities for yourself, I think, um, by getting that quite clear. So, yeah, I guess for young photographers, I think just really learning to believe in yourself and gain mentorship to figure that story out is going to be really important for them. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us and oh, good. good luck with all the work you have coming up. All right. Thanks so much, Jared. That was Medulla Arman, photojournalist at the ABC. I hope you gained as much out of that as I did. It was a really interesting conversation. If you want to check out her work, you'll find links in the podcast description. See you next time.